This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Radio Therapy. First up, big thanks to those tardy marinaras taking two minutes of our airtime. But it was sort of worth it because I learnt a new word this morning, crustaceavore. I think that's what it was, someone who eats crustaceans. Who would have thought? And nothing else? Well, I don't know. I assume they must eat other things as well. But apparently all those um, spider crabs that are in the bay at the moment, from what I was just hearing, they're not very tasty anyway, so don't rush out and become a crustaceavore just because you like the word. Stick to what you are already. A carnivore, a veggie-ovore, whatever it is. Anyway, let's get down to radiotherapy. So, uh, you know, hello, everyone. I'm Dr Doolittle. We do have a pretty packed show this morning, so you're going to have to be on your toes. You're going to have to keep up. We've got kids with depression, men with sexual problems, those facing end-of-life choices and... And lots more. Our special guest on the show today is Prof. Rob McLaughlin. Rob is a legend in andrology, which he will tell us all about, because I always get confused with what andrology is, but he's going to tell us. But my basic understanding is it pretty much means all things related to men's sexual health. He's also going to bang the drum for Andrology Australia, who are at risk of losing their funding at the moment, and we're going to have a look at that and see if maybe we can help by giving it a bit of airtime. Also on the panel this morning, we have two of our most erudite and informed radiotherapists. Dr Trainer Wheels, or Wheels for short, is a medical student and I reckon a health campaigner. She's smart, she's sharp. Intellectually, she takes no prisoners. She also has a bee in her bonnet about kids on antidepressants. I think related to some article she read and it's all, all of a sudden become a bee. She's probably just put the article in her hat to keep her head warm in this cold. Anyway, she's going to tell us what it's all about. Also joining us is Dr Perry Partum. Now, Perry's a shrink a researcher and a clinical educator. She's famous in Melbourne for her calm and composed intelligence in the face of what is sometimes a crazy bureaucratic world. I'm talking about hospitals. Um, Perry has a topic, but it's a surprise. She's refused to tell us about it. She's refused. Can you believe it? And finally, uh, we've got Kent on the panel. Kent's pushing the buttons. He's playing the songs. But, you know, there's only four microphones because it's three triple arts, community radio. Donate, we might get five. And so... He's only going. He's probably going to have to steal my microphone if he wants to talk. So, uh, you know, sit back, everyone. Stay rugged up in bed and tune in. Who are we going to say hello? Let's say hello to Rob first, Professor Rob Mc, Robert McLaughlin. How are you, Rob? Very well, thank you. Good. Thanks so much for uh, coming in here to the Brunswick Studios on a Sunday morning to tell us all about uh, andrology. We're going to get to you um, in about five minutes on specific stuff, but of course, we want you to just interrupt and say whatever you want as you go because let's face it, you're the most informed um, and uh, what's the word educated did everything person on the panel this morning so you may as well just kick us out the way if we're saying nonsense. I don't think so. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, trainer Wheels, how are you down there? I'm very well. I'm on holidays and it's heavenly. So have you done, because I think last time you had exams coming up. Yes. Well, are you first medical student exams? Because you're only a first-year baby. I am just a first-year baby. No, we've been, they space them out quite nicely so I've had a few, lots of exams but they were a, a bit more intense the last ones a couple of weeks ago. What was the hardest? What was the hardest? Yeah, the hardest exam. Which one was keeping you awake at night worrying? Well, the one. We only really had one. It was just one big one. Oh, is it? Yeah. It's, it's I remember we had a lot of exams when I was a student. Oh, I remember. So, you know, I, I mean, I've boasted this before. Kids there's not, these days. Yeah, well, there's not many things I get to boast about, but one of the things I can boast about proudly is I held the record for failing the most exams at Melbourne University without <laughs> having to repeat a year. Until, unfortunately, they made me repeat a year. And then my record was, was just ruined. I'd failed something like, you know, 25 exams in the first three years. Because we had exams every five minutes. And I failed them about every 
six minutes. So there was very few that I passed. Hey, uh, Perry Pardon, thanks for joining us this morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. Were you a legendary medical student in your time? Because you look smart because of your glasses and stuff. Yeah, the glasses help, I think. Hey, wait a second. We've all got glasses this morning. <gasps> We're all smart. I know people out there can't see this, but every one of us, except, oh, no, including Kent, who just has put his on, every one of us in the studio, oh, we just look like such a bunch of cool nerds. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why don't we kick off with some cool nerd stuff? Why don't we start with, um, who wants to start first out of training? You want to start first, can I, can Perry? Start? Yeah, start? yeah, go. I hit have, us. Although, even though I didn't give you any warning about the topic that I want to talk about today, actually, I think it's really important, and I'm very interested in what other people here think about it. And it's a, it's a bit controversial, so maybe Good. we should have a bit of a discussion. Yeah. Um, my thinking was kind of kicked off by the very sad death of Joe Cox, who's a British parliamentarian, um, who was unfortunately murdered by uh, one of her constituents la- late last week. And it made me think a little bit about violence um, towards public figures in general, uh, and, mm-hmm. and politicians in particular, because um, here we are in the middle of a federal election campaign, and the tenor of debate, as it often does, has gotten quite heated. And even in places that I read, like the Guardian comments section, people have started to say some really nasty things about politicians, and I worry that that kind of creates an environment where violence is more acceptable. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and about... Um, you know, the way that media treats these kinds of incidents and, and whether it gets used, you know, for other reasons, you know, for example... Um, political like, purposes Political and purposes, stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about that and in that context to talk a bit about some research that I had seen, um, which was published late last year in reference to attacks on New Zealand politicians. Right. Oh, that's good. You know, one of the things I always notice and I often say, especially commenting on these things a lot in the media, is I pretty much take no notice of anything that comes out publicly in the first two weeks after a major event like a mass shooting or a murder of someone prominent because there is so much hijacking of the in- incident for various agendas. No, I don't think on purpose. Often it's just passionate people trying to understand um, some of the horrible aspects of humanity. But as a consequence, a lot of the reporting is always distorted, distorted in the first fortnight. Normally about the two-week mark, proper evidence comes out and we start to get a clear picture. Absolutely. And the perfect example of that, I suppose, is that Orlando massacre, where initially everyone thought this might be a terrorist incident. It looks more and more clear that actually it's a hate crime yeah. against LGBT Well, that was a people. classic... It was, well, it's, you know, it went from one thing to another. I mean, mm. in fact, the initial report yeah, it was a terrorist incident because he made some claims, I gather, um, over his 911 call. Then it turned out he'd made he'd, uh, he'd pledged allegiance to five separate groups in that same call. They only mentioned the one. Then it turned out people... Now people have moved on to the LGBTI issues. However, as far as I can tell from reading the reports, it's really based on um, some hearsay that someone thinks they saw him on a gay dating app and someone says they... A couple of others said they thought they saw... So, again, it's just hard to tell. You know, it'll be two weeks before we start to get a clearer picture. And so I think... I think, you know, calm heads and step, you know... Bit of patience. Yeah, anyway. Calmness is the key. Anyway, you're you're talking more about prominent public figures, not mass shootings, yeah? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, sorry, I should probably not have even brought up the Orlando Massacre, but I'm talking, yes, particularly about politicians because... Well, because when I was looking around about this particular incident, I read, in fact, something in the Herald Sun which linked to this article in research, and I have... I suppose I wanted to talk about this in particular. So uh, what these researchers did was they sent out um, a survey to all New Zealand MPs asking whether they'd experienced any incidents of harassment or violence, and uh, nearly um, 85% of the 
parliamentary respondent, which is kind of massive in That's terms good. of unsolicited queries about data. And they had incredibly high rates of incidents of harassment. Cyberbullying and, and online stalking was very, very common. And some of that was really disturbing, like people posting pictures of, you know, Jenna Taylor and then making comments about the parliamentarian's teenage children, really horrifying oh stuff. God. But then it progressed to personal approaches. Sometimes people approached at their house. Sometimes things were thrown at them or they were personally threatened. And there's a whole list of terrible things that actually have happened on a really frequent basis. I think uh -huh. 40% of people had actually been um, personally harassed at their home. Um, one person had had a Molotov cocktail thrown at their caravan, which then exploded. How many did you say again? Just to give us the numbers. Approximately how many politicians were, um, responded? Um, of the 120-something politicians that there are in New Zealand, 112 yeah. responded. Okay. So yeah, 84% no of them, mm -hmm. approximately. Um, and, and I find that all kind of really, really profoundly horrifying. So... Um, uh, I suppose the thing that worries me a little bit, a lot actually, is that um, I know a few politicians personally and when I read about the comments that are generated online about them, they are quite extreme and they seem to be getting more extreme and I think that we have this view that we have some kind of personal ownership of these people, that, that mm. it's not just the policies that they're promulgating, that's the issue, it's actually the person themselves. I, I, I think there's two factors, I think there's that public figures, there's a sense that we have ownership of public figures, I agree with that entirely, but there's also um, the whole trolling phenomenon, mm. so trolls, so people who feel that they can write abusive things online um, often without any um, sense of uh, awareness of legal re recourse, they don't, they're not aware that they can be sued for slander. Just because they printed it online under a fake name doesn't mean they can't be tracked down and sued. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's sort of like that um, that road rage bravery, you know, when you're, you know, people losing their temper freely because they think they're you know, protected by their metal car. They think they're protected by the internet. They think they can say abusive things. Some of the horrible things that get said. So I think there's two phenomena going on. One, that sense of ownership of public feature people, and two, a bit of an epidemic of trolling that's, you know, being fuelled by ac ability to get wide access to yeah. a large voice through, you know, social media. And this anonymity that people yeah, have. Yeah, this sense of anonymity. Yes, true. That's yeah. true. And so that worries me a bit because I think that it sort of generates a, um, an environment in which anything goes. Mm. And I think that's really dangerous. Uh, I would maybe, if if I can do anything on um, on air today, it would be to make an appeal to people to play the ball and not the man. If that's a sporting analogy that I've got right, <laughs> if you really dislike someone's policies, then say so. But don't attack their haircut or their facial expressions or their eyebrows. You know, I, I just, just think I, f I fear you. Um, I fear <laughs> that's just going to fall on deaf ears. <laughs> so what did that, what did you find out though about the cause of violence against politicians? Well, it was interesting. So um, there's this task force which is called the fixated threat assessment center it's based in England. Gee, some people come up with catchy titles <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to call it ftac from now on because that's a bit catchier but it was set up actually primarily initially to manage threats to the queen so there's this devoted group of somewhat unstable people who persistently contact the queen in england and there's about 600 of them that the secret service keeps an eye on and what they actually got in sort of the late um nine um, late last century and early 2000s was they put together um, a combined task force which included mental health advisors. So this meant that when people were making kind of just 
disturbing threats that that would be sort of assessed as, in, as to its risk and, and what it might be motivated by. And they found that actually a really large percentage of those people um, had a mental illness, in fact, and would benefit from treatment. So of the first 100 people that were referred to FTAC, uh, about 86 of them were um, diagnosed with a mental illness and required treatment either in an inpatient unit or in a community clinic. So I think that's interesting that there's this kind of confluence of people who are maybe not well and they, they fix on public figures and, you know, currents in the media and and that's the, the source and, and the content of the delusional ideas that they have and they're probably more likely to act on their See, delusional That's beliefs. fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, the filter of this violence is the public figure. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at violence genuinely in the community, I remember, does anyone guys wouldn't have lectures, but we used to have lectures by this fantastic forensic um, psychiatrist who was sort of the guy his name was Paul Mullins. Oh, he's still no, I remember Paul. Yes, he's and, um, yes. he's worked in England, New Zealand and Australia and he's sort of like the world guru on yes. the causes of violence and the links between mental illness and one of the people who widely um, got the message out there that whilst men- people who are mentally ill have a tiny increased risk of violence, they're far greater um, likelihood to harm themselves. And in fact, he used to stand up and he said, if you really want to go through the causes of violence, it pretty much goes, I hope I'm not paraphrasing him wrong. It pretty much, and he was very charismatic, let me yes, tell you. And he'd highly. stand up there in these grey suits and he was imposing with, you know, he sort of looked like a psychiatric James Bond. He was very, you know, he just couldn't, he, in fact, he's beautifully described by Helen Garner yeah, in um, Joe Chinque's yes, Consolation because exactly. he gave evidence in that case. If you ever want to, you know, Google that. But he'd stand up and say, really, and he had a great voice, really, the causes of violence essentially can be summarised as being male, being male, being male, being young, being young, drugs and alcohol, drugs and alcohol, and the other causes are all relatively minor, and mental illness is one of the minor causes. He was so, you know, so... I hope yes. I think, do you remember... Have yeah, I got I that remember, wrong? That's no, no, roughly right. Com- well, you've got it completely right, and then he changed his mind. So maybe after he stopped... How did he change his mind? Uh, based on evidence, so... Yeah, but what evidence? Well, I mean, what was? So, what did he change to? I don't need to know the evidence. Oh, so he changed... Well, he, he was quite influential in setting up this particular task force because yep. some of his research did in fact demonstrate that people with mental illness sometimes do commit violent offences. Oh yeah, but yep. and he always said there was a, mm. a small increased risk yep. but I think the place where you'll find mental ill is in the stalker population, yes, so people right. who either stalk or kill prominent people yep. but not in the mass shooters. Uh, no, no, I think that's true. And not in, of course, general violence. General violence is, is aggressive young, often usually males who are, often have drugs and alcohol involved yep. and social disadvantage is a big factor too, but no, not a big factor, is a smaller factor. Um, I feel okay. we're not giving the rest of you much chance to talk, Rob. <laughs> You're both just trying so interesting. No, I'm listening intently. <laughs> <laughs> this is a topic that's always hot in psychiatry. Mm. You know, what's the influence of mental illness on violence? Mm. And, you know, and really, the take-home message is it's a, it's a very small increase, but it is an increase, And but the, the farm, people with mental illness um, are far more likely to harm themselves. And be victims of crime, is oh, that true? Oh, absolutely, victims of crime, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Any other take-home messages for us, Perry? No, not really. I mean, I suppose I'm, I'm still just thinking about this whole phenomenon. It is a terrible tragedy what happened in mm. Britain. There's no question about that. Um, and I really hope this man, who seems a bit unstable, gets the treatment that he... Well, it is the first two weeks, from. so according to my theory, oh, yeah, we'll yeah, yeah, wait until it comes out. But, <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> when he was asked to give his name in court, he did say... Death to traitors and freedom for Britain. It's an interesting yeah, name. Yeah, mm. yeah. But, you know, yeah, anyway, the number of things people say early on, because it gets selectively reported, yeah. but we won't keep going yeah. over it. Hey, we should, in fact, jump over to uh, Trainer Wheels, because you have a bit of catch-up for us as well. I do. From the, uh, also from the journals, yeah? Yes. So there was an article in The Lancet, which was kind of quite publicly circulated. You may have seen it. Um, it was a big meta-review talking about the use of antidepressants in children and adolescents. 
So it looked at 31 smaller studies that have been conducted over the last 30 years and it looked at the use of 14 different antidepressants as compared with placebo for the use for, for use in children and adolescents with depression. Um, and basically, the study found that statistically only Prozac is better than placebo. Every, none of the others are any better than placebo. And a lot of them actually come were associated with an increased risk of suicide in children and adolescents, which I think probably won't be news to Perry and Doolittle here. Um, but it's interesting information to have. And the main kind of, um, I guess, recommendation was that when treating children and adolescents, and I think it's probably fair to say anybody with uh, mental health issues, drugs are not the be-all and end-all. They need close monitoring and psychotherapy and other other ways of other forms of treatment too. I guess, you know, that whole antidepressant story in general... It's probably followed the same path of nearly every drug that comes out. You know, a drug comes out, there's five years of extreme excitement as everyone jumps on board and thinks it's wonderful. Then there tends to be some sort of backlash as people see all the problems and it starts to, you know, go around. And then it hopefully finds a sort of equilibrium of appropriate use. And the same's happened in adults. Antidepressants came out, you know, clearly in retrospect were overprescribed in the first, especially when the new ones came out. The original ones came out in the 50s, but they're hard to prescribe, hard to take. They didn't have nearly the uptake. Prozac came out in the early 90s and all the other newer ones followed and massive uptake you know people had their dogs on the on the um, on the damn stuff people still do do they oh, oh yeah yeah no that's a whole other conversation <laughs> about okay. vet psychiatrists vet psychiatrists okay. is a thing you know wow. but sorry. we'll get one on we'll get one yeah. on soon <laughs> we'll get one on we promise vet psychiatrists out there to give you a bit of airtime soon but anyway so everyone went on them and of course then it turned out they weren't as effective there was a lot of side effects people it's pulled back you know and it's turned out now as a lot of the sort of um, more sophisticated meta-analyses have come out that they're not really nearly as effective as originally thought and pretty much everyone recommends in adults first line now, especially for moderate depression, they recommend psychological therapy you know, as, as first line. Once you get to severe, they recommend both medications and antidepressants. And in kids, that's always been the case. We've never recommended same, yeah. antidepressants first up for kids because there's always been that slight increased risk of suicide too. Because antidepressants, when you first go on them, often make you a little bit agit- agitated and that can, well, there might be other reasons, but that can um, contribute to your feelings of sort of um, despair and maybe tip you over. So people are always worried. And the review did say when treating children and adolescents with antidepressants to closely monitor them, especially in the beginning, which obviously hopefully everyone was doing anyway um what was interesting in the report too was that they they talked about all the studies they analyzed which i said was 31 they said they were kind of all a bit dodgy there weren't that many really good studies out there correct looking at well it's incredibly hard and i suspect that's the case with a lot of psychiatric research yeah but even worse in kids because Mm. it's doubly hard to diagnose them because they can't give a clear history and everything from psychiatry essentially not everything but most comes from what people tell us Mm. and of course it's way harder to research them because of the um practicalities and the ethics and the recruitment and you know which parent wants to put their kid up for science for sure yeah absolutely something that i couldn't quite get my head around and you more experienced actual doctors will be able to explain this to me you'll be there Wonder. Thanks. Maybe, um, maybe if you study yeah, how to do those exams. Yeah, assuming. Um, anyway, um, there was a TGA statement that was from 2004, so obviously that's a bit old. Oh, ancient history. Yes. It did say that no antidepressants are approved for use in children. Mm. Just, but, then, but they are used in children, right? Oh, I can't, I can't definitively say one way or the other. But they are definitely used in children, that's for sure. Okay. Um, and I think that the reason that they wouldn't officially approve them is 
for the reasons that you've just mentioned, okay. which is that we have very limited data, which is not of very good quality. So the TGA is not the be-all and end-all, is that I, yeah, correct? Yeah, I can't remember where it's up to either. You know, I don't treat kids at all. Kids in Australia, you know, psych, kids are treated, it's a special subspecialty okay. in psych. So unless you do it, you largely don't treat kids. Mm. And I've never done the subspecialty in psych. So whilst we do a little bit of training, my training's even older than that 2004 statement. <laughs> um, so I can't remember. Is there any antidepressant proof? Yeah, you don't have, you know, so they <coughs> can st- you can still prescribe stuff just because it's not recommended. Okay, okay. Yeah, just that's just a general fact yeah. that I didn't know. But the, the thing that strikes me when you describe this study, actually, is that people might go away with the idea that fluoxetine Prozac is better than other antidepressants, whereas mm. I think probably what that evidence suggests is it's just been more studied than other antidepressants. Which was the case, yeah. There was heaps more data on Prozac yeah, than any of the others. exactly. And the problem there lies that um, it's, it's an older antidepressant, but the you know the entire class of SSRI antidepressants really have the same kinds of side effects and, and, and efficacy data in adults. I can't see any reason why it wouldn't be the same in children, but it just points out the problem that we have, which is we have no data. Mm. And that's a real problem when you have such a vulnerable population that you're trying to treat. Um, you don't have good evidence to base your decision-making on. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Um, but let's get to the point. Let me introduce properly Professor Robert McLaughlin. Rob is the Director of Clinical Research at the Hudson Institute and a consultant endocrinologist at Monash Medical Centre in Melbourne. He's a physician scientist who also has a PhD in reproductive medicine. Rob's clinical and research interests are in the fields of spermatogenesis, it's a long word, male fertility regulation and androgen physiology, which you're going to find out all about. He has been the consultant andrologist to the Monash IVF program since 1991 and he has research interests in the genetics of male infertility and the evaluation and management of male infertility. He served as president of the Fertility Society of Australia and secretary of the International Society of Andrology and is currently a consultant to the WHO on male fertility regulation. I can summarise all that for you. He's a legend in the area. Since 2006, he's been Director of Andrology Australia, and federal, which is a federal government initiative committed to research and community and professional education in male reproductive health. In 2016... OK, can someone... Have we got any horns? A horn section that can go... Anyway, bear with me. In 2016, he was made a member in the Order of Australia for Services to Medicine in the field of endocrinology, particularly to men's reproductive health and to medical research. Formal welcome, Rob. My goodness. <laughs> Thanks. That was a, a lot to get through, but it's great to be here. Thank Must, you. When people read out stuff like that, does it feel like you're at your own funeral? You know, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of hoping one day I get that. You know, immediately I'm going to crack the yours like a eulogy joke. I've yes. been waiting for it for years, but so far no one ever has. Hey, let's get <laughs> let's kick it off with tell us what is andrology? Because it is a sort of funny word. What yeah, is andrology? It's not a word that we use much in Australia. It's uh, more commonly used in Europe and America, but in essence it's... Uh, as gynaecology is to women, andrology is to men. So oh, it's the, right. It's, it's, the, thinking it's of it. the focus on the male reproductive system and disorders. But we also know that uh, very rapidly it extends to general men's health issues and chronic disease and all sorts of aspects. So it's, it's focused on the reproductive system, but it, it spreads out from there. Why, why don't I... Why? <laughs> Why am I a bit ignorant about it? Is it one of these things that's neglected in medical schools? Because I don't think I don't remember hearing much about it at all in medical school. No, I, I think there's perhaps only one Australian medical school that has a, a course in uh, male health. They all have child health and they all have women's health, but not 
men's health or not andrology as such. So one of the things Andrology Australia has been doing the last few years is developing a medical school curriculum which is now being beta tested, if you like, by several medical schools with the hope that uh, we can uh, get that more generally accepted, basically course materials to make sure that they cover the scope of male reproductive health. Because there's plenty to suggest anecdotally and perhaps uh, we can get some uh, confirmation from our uh, co-discussant here. It hasn't been something that's been discussed as a, as a group concept in medical schools for years. And we know that because many of the graduates don't feel comfortable, for example, to do a male genital examination, which mm-hmm. is pretty easy, but they don't get to be comfortable doing that. And that take, they carry that through into their later practice. I vaguely remember we had just one session on something to do with erectile dysfunction, but everyone just sniggered the whole time. And, uh, you know, what if... I think we've got that coming up next semester, but I, I doubt it's going to be covered in as much detail as women's reproductive health, unfortunately. What sort of clinical areas do you treat in andrology? Well, I guess the, the five areas that Andrology Australia sort of identified as quintessential are things like testicular cancer, male infertility, testosterone, uh, erectile dysfunction, male, male infertility. But then we find uh, that uh, we um, uh, realise that, for example, erectile dysfunction is closely related to chronic disease. So um, things like blood pressure, smoking, diabetes, uh, uh, high blood pressure, uh, medications, particularly uh, some psychotropic medications, they all impact on erectile dysfunction. Why do you say is smoking in the absence of chronic disease or only if smoking causes no. chronic disease? Smoking alone causes erectile dysfunction? Well, smoking presumably through its effect on blood vessels yep. because, uh, to put it most clearly, an erection is a, is a blood vessel function. Right. Uh, it, it, you've got to have healthy blood vessels and healthy nerves for that to occur. So in men who present perhaps in their 50s with the only symptom as recent onset erectile dysfunction, those uh, gentlemen have to be thoroughly assessed because they may not know it, but they may already have vascular disease, mm. blood pressure, diabetes. So one of the clear messages we've got out both to the community and to, the, to uh, doctors is that erectile dysfunction has to be seen holistically in the sense of overall men's reprodu- health and chronic disease prevention. Okay, so well, talking about prevention, maybe could you talk a little bit about treatment as well? What kind of treatments do you have available for erectile dysfunction? Well, the best would be prevention. That would be clearly the best control of your diabetes and the like. Beyond that, uh, the, the most common medication, uh, of course, is the Viagra group, which is, in fact, there's several different drugs. They're all part of the PDE5 inhibitor compounds. They are very effective uh, in early or moderate erectile dysfunction because what they do is to prevent the body... Uh, processing or getting rid of the chemical in the penile uh, vasculature that keeps the erection going. So if you like, that chemical stays around longer and the relaxation of the blood vessels and the erection persists longer. So they're very safe, they're very effective for many men. Unfortunately, if the blood vessels are too badly damaged, it's been too long or it's got nerve damage as well, they won't work. And there are sort of fairly gruesome things like injection into the penis of various Mm. chemicals and ultimately uh, implants, uh, which are, again a big deal but very effective so there's a there's a cascade of things you go but most men uh, are, are managed with um uh, with the pd5 inhibitors it's also important to know that you know erectile dysfunction is not or problems are not just older men you know we have young men come to see us and very often that's a situational uh, it's due to some sort of traumatic sexual experience mm. and they get to a lack of confidence and the one thing about uh, erections are that the more you worry about them the less likely you are to get them so I see a lot of young and middle-aged men who don't have much actually organic disease, 
but they've lost, lost confidence. And they, when they start to have sexual activity, they start to think, oh, gee, is this, am, I going to, am I going to lose it again? And then they do. Well, actually, I want to ask you a question about this because one of the most widely prescribed medications to treat anxiety is, in fact, SSRI antidepressants. Yeah. And they have a pretty profound effect, not just on... Um, sexual performance, but also on sexual interest for both men and women. So mm. I think that's a that's a big problem, well, isn't it? There's a huge relationship between mental illness and erectile dysfunction, mm. uh, and it's partly uh, due to the condition itself, and also then to the medication that, that you mentioned. So that's a very complicated one. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's you know, you know how um, you know, the internet, Google, and everything, and Facebook and stuff have the ability to, um, you know, based on your patterns of use of internet, they can predict a whole lot of yeah. things about you, and they target ads at you. You know, and like. <laughs> I get about 50 ads a day for erectile dysfunction. So I think Facebook knows something that I don't know. And I'm really, yeah. you know, and so I have sort of like Facebook erectile dysfunctionophobia. Um, you know what, though? I don't think we talked about erections. On, you know, it's only recently that it we is. actually hear it talked about publicly. And I reckon as a junior doctor, I was even too embarrassed to say erections. Has the situation changed or what's going on? It's definitely changed. And I think partly you could attribute it to Viagra, actually, right. 20 years ago, because it's because it's something could be done, men came forward. In, uh, to have something to uh, get assistance, and the whole public discourse has it's been more common. So I know for a fact, 15 years ago, when Andrology Australia was trying to get into this area, we were not allowed to use the word erection in public. Really? And now it's on breakfast television. So, so yeah, but also the there were those billboards, right? You know, there's oh, massive billboards around a, town which talked about. We have a real about problem with those guys. So what names were you allowed to say, by the way? Well, <laughs> so were you, you allowed to say anything, we or did you just have to we say? Yeah. There is no, there is no other word in the English language for erection. There, there isn't one that you that's better. Than what it actually is. Not even stiffy. Oh, no, okay. yeah, no, yeah. no sniggering silly Unhelpful. jokes. Apologies I do, for that. I, I do have to say that... <laughs> we uh, have to have a word. The billboards yeah. and the public uh, promotion of treatments and clinics and commercially motivation, yes, yes. that's a big problem because men are very vulnerable in this area. They, they want anonymity. They want to control it themselves, and they think, you know, 1-800 numbers are the way to go. And by going to these, these folk, uh, they, they don't by any means get the best treatment, and they often don't get the holistic interventions we're talking about. They don't get their blood pressure, their heart, mm. their cholesterol checked. So, in fact, it's a very dangerous path. And even worse, on the Internet, if you order things on the Internet that come from various you know, labs in Thailand or whatever, there can be poisons in there. There's been mm. deaths of men taking erectile drugs which were polluted with anti-diabetic medications. Oh. And they died of hypoglycemia. So, you know, you have to... The the message is, it's a common problem. Something can be done. Go to your local doctor. There are effective treatments, and it may have bigger implications for your health Mm. than just erections. That's um, quite scary, isn't it? really very scary. We see ourselves as sort of... As a, yeah. if like a bulwark between exploitation and good evidence, and the same is of course also true for testosterone. So, well. what's just um, to you know round that topic out? What should someone do if they're worried about erectile dysfunction? Head to the GP yes. first, yes. and the GP should do all the checks for chronic illness. Yep. Consider the psychological factors. Yep. Look for the reversible f- um, physiological factors. Yep. Consider the treatments, which yep. is largely all those things yep. you said. And like far more people do stuff. that, and they use our materials. Hey, look, um, I want to hear a little bit about Bad Andrology Australia. Yeah. Um, so, tell us about Andrology. Australia first and then we'll ask you what's well, going on with the funding. It, it was a, an organisation that was the brainchild of uh, Professor David de Kretzer who's actually a, a previous Victorian state governor oh. endocrinologist uh, uh, like myself and he recognised that there was no collective body that could bring together evidence based information to inform the public and to inform local doctors and so he got support from the federal government uh, for this initiative and that's 16 years ago and we've been running for 16 years. Uh, we've been I think very successful in fact we're a 
being emulated overseas uh, by Americans and the Europeans because we've been so effective at getting the best minds, the most independent minds in the country together to produce materials which are targeted to the population and to doctors. So we're very careful about how we extract information and produce it in a way that people can understand. And we've also targeted special groups that need attention. For example, the Indigenous Doctors Association we've worked very closely with to try and get materials that they can take to their populace to ensure it's effective. So, so we have a, 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 a curriculum for male health workers and Indigenous health, for example. So we've tried to pick out areas of special need as well as general need, and we've been very effective. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we were on originally three-year funding and then yearly for the last several years, and now we've had our funding cut abruptly. And it's been a tremendous shock, I think, not just to us, but also to all the, the public and the doctors uh, who rely upon our materials. For example, we provide... It's International Men's Health Week, which is, ex, I guess, exquisitely ironic. That oh, it is cut too. The funding. That starts actually yeah. today, yeah, yeah, yes. one week. So that's a great time. I forgot about that. But, but there are 520 organisations which are using our materials for their, for their promotions at a local level people like men's sheds and yep. those sort of people so uh, you know we, we do that and we have uh, lots of uh, uh, materials for local doctors online learning uh, curricula so they can get their uh, their uh, health uh, points you know their cpd points uh, download fact sheets and so on so this is all going to come to an end unless we can so get have you had your funding completely cut yes yes so you'll disappear if this isn't fixed that's have that's you got, the way it's looking have you got for like it? a petition or something that yes we if you go to the website andrologyaustralia.org uh, and there's a there's a click on uh, that where you can you can give your support by filling in a petition in the right way so it has some impact at the federal government level. Also, Twitter, Facebook, uh, letters you can write to your local member. And we've got lots of people ringing up. They're pretty outraged about this. Uh, just men in the community as well as the doctor groups who just say, "What the what is going on here?" Uh, just for your interest, uh, the budget's around about 1.5 million dollars a year oh, for the so whole activity. So it's not a lot. That's it. And it's a national activity, and everything we do is for nothing. I think that's what. They pledged for puffing Billy, actually. Yes, we we can't charge for anything because we are we are committed to providing free free information, and so that's that's a. So look, we are hoping to get dialogue for, from the government or whoever that might be after the election. But of course, now things are paralysed by the caretaker provision, so we can't pick this up until week after next. But uh, right, we, we, we we're, we're going to have another go at this because it's just too, I think, important for Australian men. Can I ask a question did you get any notice about this or did it just sort of drop like a bomb from heaven that you weren't no, going to have no any... notice only that one knows that for the last few years things have been year to year to year uh-huh. and decisions about funding have become later and later in the piece mm. but we honestly thought on the 5th of may we were going to get another year's extension mm. okay. on the 6th of may we found out that it was not going to happen and then caretaker mode started on the monday oh so really that and was that so how many people are employed by your organization that presumably we had seven or eight full-time staff mm. uh, a couple have left a couple of uh, in the act of leaving uh, we hope to continue in the short term uh, for with a few staff whilst we work out how to either run down or reinitiate that's the problem isn't it because even if you do get another a block of funding, you're going to have to re-recruit and start all over again, really. Well, that's the point. I'm afraid, I think there's something that's, it must have occurred to many good organisations. It takes a long time to set things up, to get that corporate knowledge and get the systems. And once you break it, it's hard to put it together again. It's yeah. such a common problem. We're not yeah. alone in that area, I'm sure. No, I, yeah, I've experienced something similar in perinatal psychiatry. Yes, well, um, you but, have my sympathy. Yeah. yeah. 
Hey, um, you're going to stay with us and keep chatting. We're going to go to another break and come back after the break and talk about um, the Victorian government's cross-party report on end-of-life decisions and uh, assisted dying. In a second, you've been listening to us on Radiotherapy. We've just had Professor Robert McLaughlin talking about andrology and Andrology Australia, such an important topic. We hope you can all jump on board their website, which is andrologyaustralia.org, and then there's a, a link. I also actually wanted to mention, because we previously talked about depression in kids, and whenever we talk about those distressing topics, it's worthwhile just reminding people who are distressed that they can um, ring Lifeline or any one of the other organisations Organization Lifelines one three one 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 four. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back, friends, families, and radiotherapy listeners alike. It's uh, Dr. Trainer Wheels, Dr. Doolittle. That's me, by the way. Dr. Perry Pardon, Professor Rob McLaughlin. We've been talking about all sorts of stuff. And we've only got about 10 minutes left before we hand over to the legendary scientists at Einstein and Gogo, who we love and adore. Um, but in that time, we wanted to touch on this report that's um, come out, because it only came out in the last uh, week or so. And it was the um, state government's cross-party report into end-of-life um, matters. And it looked at a whole lot of stuff. Um, it basically looked at end-of-life choices um, and really came out with a whole lot of recommendations, essentially 49 recommendations. In a nutshell, because we're going to whiz through this and talk about the end-of-life stuff, they came out with 29 of the 49 recommendations were about strengthening palliative care, you know, just the importance of getting a decent palliative care um, services um, in the home, in the hospitals and everywhere else in Victoria. Just, you know, no-brainer sort of stuff. I don't think anyone will disagree. It'll just be a funding issue. And then improved advanced care planning. That was 18 of the 49 recommendations. And that was all about strengthening the legislation around um, advanced life directives. Currently... Um, a decision that we've discussed, a process that we've discussed on this show and other places many times over recent years, especially with um, Lex Judicata, our uh, radiotherapy lawyer. Currently, if people make advanced care directives and then families overturn them at the last minute, the doctors just fold like a cheap deck of cards and go with the family for a whole lot of good reasons and they've come in and they've argued it to us, although myself and Lex Judicata quite strongly believe that people's wishes should be respected. I know not everyone disagrees. Anyway, there's a whole lot of recommendations around strengthening those to um, make people's wishes um, firmer, which is fantastic. So that adds up to 48 of the 49 recommendations. The one recommendation, of course, which is the biggie that's got everyone talking, is that Victoria should legalise assisted dying. So that's recommended nation, recommendation number 49 in the report, and they prov- and then they spend a whole lot of the report providing a legal framework and a whole lot of um, discussion and advice around it. Any comment before I go on, gang? Wow, that's pretty groundbreaking. Uh-huh. How come I didn't read about that in the paper? Because you're not been uh, you've been too busy reading about the uh, election. Maybe. Yeah, no, but it's been getting a lot of cover- quite a bit of coverage, not massive amounts. So the election has completely drowned it out. Mm. To give you a bit of context, though, Australia's had 51 separate p- bills re- um, put through Parliament in different states and territories and federally over the last whatever it is 30 years trying to get assisted dying up in some shape or form and it's pretty much failed every time except the Northern Territory, whatever it was, about a decade ago that then got overturned by federal legislation, which interestingly, that federal legislation, there's some legislation before the Senate to stop the Mm. federal rules overriding the territory and state rules. So that might get overturned too. But this, the beauty of this one is if you read the report and it's dead easy to find, that's a stupid way of putting it, it's (laughs) easy to find, sorry about that, that was unintentional. Um, It's easy to find, jump on, just search it. Um, 
it's the thing about this i've never seen a report written so beautifully i just love this report it's got all the background it's it's done by cross-party groups so liberal labor a sex party member a greens member they spent 10 months they took over a thousand submissions 150 were face to face they then traveled to canada um europe they uh, america places that already there's about 20 countries in the world that already have this um they went and looked at it all they wrote the only things they came out it's quite conservative like, for example, you know, all the usual things. You've got to be over 18. You've got to be able to consent. You've got to request it three times the last time in writing. Uh, your primary doctor's got to agree. Then you've got to have a totally independent second doctor. If there's a hint of mental illness, the shrink has to, a psychiatrist has to be involved and say something. But they also, so you have to be competent entirely so that completely rules out any dementia process. That's out. Um, obviously, mental illness is out. So, you know, it's, it's a very conservative law compared to other countries. Um, so what's the difference between the law that's proposed in Victoria and say the Netherlands. Are you well, in the have... Netherlands, they've got. Um, look, oh, oh, I should have looked this up, but I'm pretty sure they have euthanasia as well, meaning that the doctor can um, actually inject you. Now, interestingly, our law is all about assisted dying. So, you, the doctor, gives you the ability to um, end your life in the way and time that you choose. You have to be terminal, has to be within months of um, dying, and you have to have unbearable suffering. That was the other big caveat in ours. But there's actually an interesting little paragraph in the summary that is. I don't think we'll get through. Because this now, what happens now, by the way, is Parliament has six months to respond and then there's an 18-month process if they agree that we'll bring it in. With It builds up all the laws and the framework and all the... Um, all the there's like an ombudsman set up for the process. But they have one little paragraph that I think is quite controversial and it says, if the patient's physically unable to um, take the do the process themselves, then the doctor can do it. Mm. So actually... This does, their recommendations do sort euthanasia. of allow for euthanasia in a certain circumstance. Mm. Just in case anyone's concerned, um, confused, euthanasia is when someone ends your life for you. Um, assisted suicide is when you end it yourself with the help of a professional who gives you the medications. Any comments? What do you think? Do you reckon... Oh, who... I'm speechless. So this is really, really you big change. You do look change. shocked, Perry I'm Why so are you so shocked? Well, because it just snuck through and I thought I was, you know, keeping... A across local events and you know this is something that's just happened in the context of absolutely nothing as far as I can tell so I mean it's really interesting for people who've worked with people at the end of life obviously and who've ever seen family or friends having to suffer through a prolonged illness which just makes dying more difficult and I think that there's obviously a groundswell of you know support for this kind of change in the community but there has been a lot of reluctance at sort of parliamentary level so I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen next. Well, that's been an interesting um, thing that's gone on forever. Pretty much the public, about 85% of surveys of assisted dying, not necessarily euthanasia, but assisted dying, about 85% of the public are normally for it. Yet, of course, parliamentarians traditionally don't want to touch it in every country and for decades because it is such a thorny issue. Mm, and there's, there's this idea about the slippery slope that people yes. might start being gotten rid of, you know, by people who don't want them around. Uh, the uh, the report makes clear that this has been in positional things like this for many, many years in many, many jurisdictions, both in, in the US and also in Europe. There must be an awful lot to be learned about things that have gone well or not so well or problems encountered just from their experience. Uh, and if, they're put, if it's working well for them, it's very likely to work perfectly well for us. A lot of anti-assisted dying and euthanasia, uh, I guess, advocates, um, they look at places like Belgium and the Netherlands as these, you know, dramatic slippery slope places because they they they, they, they have legal assisted dying of people with mental illnesses and in some cases children and things like that and, and 
I guess broadly, it, it sounds like it's pretty bad. Um, but in, in Oregon, they have a really tight, highly regulated mm. um, system there. And from what I understand, even anti-assisted dying advocates can't really even fault the law in Oregon. Yeah. And so I, th- I think if we were to adopt yeah. something like that, we'd be pretty, pretty sweet. Well, one of the things I love about this report is it does, it is a very gentle, apart from that bit about mm. that it sort of hints at euthanasia, everything in the report is really well thought out, really, it's a gentle introduction, it's conservative, you know, you've got to be right at the end of your life, unbearable suffering, you know, multiple doctors involved in, you know, including a psychiatrist if there's mental illness, um, multiple requests for it, you know, there's lots of safe, they've got a whole, they've recommended a whole body of um of supervision of the process, essentially an ombudsman-like process that reviews it and looks at controversial issues. So it's really thorough, but at the end of the day, um, people are, there's going to be people who are just philosophically opposed on whatever grounds, be it religious or whatever. And then, of course, the slippery slope argument, which we've mentioned, just so in case people aren't familiar with what that is, the slippery slope argument says once you allow any sort of state-sanctioned killing, even for really good reasons like terminal illness and people who want it and um, rights and etc., that it could sneak further down and you could end up with the state killing people that they don't want. That's essentially the slippery slope argument. And um, and uh, it is true that in certain countries, what did you say, is it Denmark? They oh, Belgium do, is Belgium the is one, it where they allow they do allow um, euthanasia or assisted dying for people with mental illnesses and they have had kids involved and stuff, which has caused a lot of um, concern. But um, I personally, look, I can see the slippery slope argument. I see what they mean, but I I don't see, you know, with our really strong processes, I would hope that you know, this is completely safe against it. It's interesting that you think there's lack of political courage to actually engage in what would seem to have a lot of popular support. I mean, Victoria hasn't shied away from controversial areas. I mean, this was the jurisdiction with the first uh, regulation of assisted reproduction and IVF technologies mm. back in the 80s. So that was a really prickly issue at the time. Dealt with it, moved on, and so on. So why would Victoria want to be behind uh, such a debate. Victoria's pretty notorious for progressive legislation. We're quite famous. I heard a lawyer, I'm trying to think of all the examples he gave, but I heard a lawyer on another radio station talking about it the other day and saying, you know, Victoria's always been a forerunner and we should be proud and, and, you know, congratulations to the state government for putting this up and, you know, and in fact, um, who's our current Premier? I'm so bad on politics. Daniel Andrews. I heard him say something along the lines of he's a I think he said he was a Christian or a Catholic or, you know, some sort of Christian. And he said, whilst, you know, he has certain views, you know, this is not about my views and I'm here to represent the public's views and my views won't be reflecting it. It's going to be a um, a conscience vote in Parliament, et cetera, et cetera, which I thought was pretty pretty fantastic. I was quite impressed with all that. It is good, isn't it? It's frustrating. There's a few issues like that where there's overwhelming public support for things and and the the parliamentary opinion just doesn't seem to follow it. Obviously, it's complicated, but it's it's one of those frustrating things where you think, is this even democracy? Well, I mean, that's one issue... But the other issue, I suppose, is also that there are the heads of large organisations like, for example, the AMA or the, you know, or APRA, which regulates doctors in Australia, and they actually suspended Philip Nitschke's mm. registration because he was hoping to help people with terminal illnesses end their life peacefully. So I think that there's, it's really not just the parliamentarians, it's actually, you know, people um, in organisations like yeah. medicine, which you would actually not think... Um, yeah, no, there's lots of controversy around it. But, you know, I guess the bottom line is it's one of these opportunities when something like this comes out for everyone to talk, whether you believe in it and agree with it or not. Jump on board and give your opinions. It's a, a fantastic report. Have a look. Hey, we're going to wind up, everyone. Um, it, there's only 15 seconds to hand over to Einstein, and uh, we're going to be right on time just about. Thanks so much, um, Professor Robert McLaughlin from Andrology Pleasure. Australia. Everyone jump on board and support their organisation at andrologyaustralia.org. Thanks, uh, Perry Pardon for jumping in on board at the you at the last minute and filling in so 
wonderfully. And, of course, trainer wheels for, you know, for getting away from the study for a little while and uh, coming in and keeping his company. Kent, you're a legend for uh, pressing the button. Sorry we didn't give you a microphone. Hey, everyone, have a good week. Um, we'll be back again next week. Um, stay tuned for the uh, scientists who are so smart that I'm intimidated by them. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R. 102.7. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.